Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 70 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Despite the holidays and what would seem like a slowdown, the arguments march on, and Pat and I are also catching up with some arguments that took place in the last couple of weeks. As per the normal, today we will cover three cases. The first case we'll cover is Lake Imogene versus Franciscan, an Indiana Supreme Court case addressing the Medical Malpractice Act and proposed potential changes to it. The second case well, is... Wilson. Judicial changes. Judicial changes, right. <laughs> judicial right, change. Right, right, right. Which may lead to a legislative change. Right, right. We'll talk and, about it. And we've talked in Indiana before about sometimes the, you know, going through this process. So um, in any event, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. The, the second case today is Wilson versus Brees Elementary District 12. That was recently argued before the Illinois Appellate Court 5th District involving another area of tort immunity about uh, doorways and whether they're part of the recreational uh, setting, uh, another tort immunity that, uh, as, as, as we uh, cover on the Podium and Panel podcast, there's a lot of immunities for uh, the government. And the third case today is Dunover versus Clark Material Handling, an Illinois First District case addressing issues of judicial estoppel. Turning to Lake Imogene versus Franciscan, uh, the Indiana Supreme Court heard another case this week, or this past week, I, I should say, in which expanding the scope of the Medical Malpractice Act is at issue. And like Imogene versus Franciscan, the court will decide whether the trial and appellate courts were correct to find that a contractual indemnity claim was covered by the MMA and that the statute of limitations had run for such a claim. Similar to the Brown versus Mercy Hospital case from the Illinois Appellate Court that Pat wrote about uh, this past week and that we discussed on episode 69 of the show, this case also raises issues of disclosure of independent contractors that could have absolved the hospital for liability. The court seems skeptical of Lake Imogene's position and concerned about what expansion of the MMA into contractual claims would lead to. The court was also focused on whether it had to even get to the statute of limitations issue. Pat, with that, why don't you tell us about oral argument in this case? Thanks, Dan. So let me give some more meat on the bone as to what happened here. Then we can shift to the legal issues. So the hospital is sued for a mistake that the radiologist from Lake Imaging allegedly made in failing to identify a tumor. It turns out it was a tumor. Uh, for those of you that are Arnold Schwarzenegger fans. It's, um, it's not a tumor. It, yeah, it was, as it turned out. <laughs> yeah. And, Oops. Uh, yeah, well, a bit more serious than that, because I, I, I think Seriously. the person ended up ended up passing as a result of the failed diagnosis. And so they sue the hospital for failing to catch it, and the hospital resolves the matter with the plaintiff, as, as I think we understand it. Well, there was a contractual indemnity claim or a contractual indemnity provided for between Lake Imaging and the hospital. Well, the hospital files suit 
under that contractual indemnity theory and does so more than two years after the uh, cause of action for medical malpractice accrued and doesn't file it through the very, uh, what's the word I should use, complex medical malpractice process that Indiana has through the Department of Insurance and the Patient's Compensation Fund. So the pl- the plaintiff, or strike that, the defendant, Lake Imaging, so now you've got hospital versus Lake Imaging, you know, the hospital versus uh, radiologist group, um, files a motion to dismiss saying you're out of time and, oh, by the way, you didn't go through this the right way. The the uh, appellate court uh, agreed with that, said it was out of time and they didn't fi- properly follow the procedure. The issue is, do they have to? It's an indemnity claim. It's not a tort claim. Um, it's a contractual claim. And the statute of limitations for such written breach of written contracts in uh, Indiana is 10 years, like it is in Illinois. So the question becomes, and then, but in the first instance, do they need to address or do they uh, do they need to have filed it as a medical malpractice claim? And here's where the really the concerns of the court really came in uh, was is everything between doctors and hospitals going to now be subject to the medical malpractice act because it all might touch on medical malpractice. So one of the examples that one of the justices gave was, well, you fire a doctor for cause; it related to his provision of bad care. Are we now going to have the MMA involved in employment disputes? Are we now going to have the um, you know the department involved? How far does this go? Where's the limiting principle here? Um, the other part of this is we talked about on Kutch, uh, in, on episode thirty one a case called Cutchin, and the court held so that was a situation where the doctor failed to provide appropriate instructions to their patient regarding the use of opiates, and the patient uh, killed. Uh, in a car accident, killed uh, a mother and a daughter, a child. And they sued the family, the the father and husband sued the doctor who he alleged did not properly prescribe these and give instructions to the person about the use of the opiates, prescription opiates. And the question was whether he was a patient. And one of the issues was, is how do you expand patient? He plainly wasn't a patient in the the normal sense, but was he a patient under the uh, definition? And the court said, yes, he was. He could file an action, even though he was a stranger to the patient-doctor relationship. So this is another example where someone's trying to expand the definition of what's covered by the uh, Medical Malpractice Act and real concerns about, hold it, this is contractual claim isn't in the list of kinds of claims that are covered by this. How are you possibly a patient? To which the response was, well, the underlying claim is a negligence claim. That's what you're indemnifying on. That arose out of medical malpractice. That's a negligence claim. The fact that your indemnity claim is is derivative of that doesn't change the fact that it's an underlying negligence claim. I'm not sure how much traction that got with the court. The other issue was, is which statute of limitations applies and whether it was breached or not. And Justice Slaughter, I think it was in particular, was was like, this hasn't been decided by the underlying, by the trial court. Uh, we're, we're a court of review, not first view. You've heard that before. And, you know, yes, it's a legal question. And yes, we could decide it, but why would we? Why right. would we send it back to the lower courts to straighten that out? The trial court in particular, because the trial court didn't rule on the issue. 
Um, yes, the appellate court looked at it, but they didn't have to. That seems like dicta. So they were just trying to be helpful. Uh, we're not in the business of being helpful. We're in the business of deciding issues that are before us. And so why should we decide that and, and, that, and thereby have the benefit of whatever the uh, court finds? Uh, and, and, you know, find their reasoning. And then we can decide based on what they say, what you say, and then we can kind of decide uh, with a full record and the benefit of everybody below having chimed in on the topic. Uh, so lots of questions about that issue, too, and a, and a number of other issues. But those are the two big ones uh, that really highlighted this argument and, and uh, make it very interesting because <laughs> I don't know how you present a contractual indemnity claim to a panel that's supposed to opine on medical malpractice issues. Um, the And then who decide, I mean, the point that the, like Imogene said, who's deciding that we were negligent? I mean, the only way we owe in contractual indemnity is if we were negligent. Well, to defi- determine if we're negligent, that's got to, that, that Indiana, that's only determined by the panel. So you can't, do, who, who's, that's not done by a, by a court. So they've got a very good argument that, yeah. you know, that who, who was supposed to decide that and, even under a in order to be owe the indemnity, we have to have been liable in tort for our negligence approximately causing the plaintiff's injury. Well, that's medical malpractice is what's alleged, and that's covered by the MMA. So I think they've got a good argument coming back, but I think the court has real policy concerns about what could uh, come from a decision in favor of the defendant, like imaging. Uh, Dan, did you have other things you wanted to add to 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 our discussion of this case? No, I agree with you, Pat, and I think it, it is interesting because, as you mentioned, you know, what, what's the limit if you start expanding these things? Then at some point, like you said, does employment or other issues come up, come before, uh, you know, come, come into the medical malpractice arena? It's pretty expansive, and so it'll be interesting to watch how this, uh, how, the, how the Indiana Supreme Court decides this case. And irrespective of how they decided, as we said at the beginning, there might be a, a legislative response. If they expand right. it and the legislature is not happy about it, then they might do something. If they don't expand it and the legislature is not happy about it, they might, they might do something. <laughs> so the legislature is going to have the final word on what is and what is not included, irrespective of what the judiciary does. Um, I just think the judiciary is a bit – they're a bit worried about what, uh, what their intervention – because they're not – they don't have the full benefit of all the policies. I mean, this is a statute – that was passed in 1975. Uh, they've had this system for a very long time. And I can't believe this hasn't come up before. It's really kind of shocking, but it hasn't. And there we are. The other thing was, is that the, the, what, that the appellate court dealt with was the disclosure question we talked about in Brown and that the radiologists were always on the list, at least in Illinois, of those that are independent. And so the hospital wouldn't have been liable. You know, right. I think the reason why this doesn't come up more is because they just name them and they let, and they let the let, let the uh, court sort it out as to whether they're properly in or not. Um, right. And then it deals with that on the back end. So I, I um, it, it's it's a bit interesting, uh, but the disclosure apparently wasn't very robust. And consequently, they were put on. Uh, they were made liable for the conduct of the, or the allegedly negligent conduct of the uh, radiologists. Yep. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with segment two and discuss Wilson versus Brees Elementary District 12. Mm-hmm. 
We're back for segment two of episode 70 of the Podium and Panel podcast with Wilson versus uh, Brees Elementary School. So the question here is, is the doorway to to an elementary school gym that has a foyer before you get to the gym, keep that in mind, a part of a recreational facility for the purposes of tort immunity law under Illinois law? Okay. Let's just say that the Tort Immunity Act in Illinois is extraordinarily specific, or at least it tries to be. It tries uh, to be. Covering all the different kinds of things that government, local government gets involved in, including recreational facilities. Instead of just saying anything you do is immune, they right. like created like all these different ones. Right. Well, on a prior episode, we did did sidewalks. I mean, it's all, they're, they're, like you said, there's chases. Is someone in custody, you know? Uh, that was the uh, Robinson case, which so there's all then there's the then there's the police provision and and dispatching. We've had all manner of different things that the government gets itself involved in and whether they're immune or not. So this is really a metaphysical question that the court's going to address. Uh, and the, the court that's going to address is the Illinois Appellate Court, Fifth District. Uh, the plaintiff was injured as she walked into a school gym being used by band parents. Ah, band parents. Always causing problems, they are. Uh, used for a, marauders. Exactly. <laughs> used for a craft fair. She tripped on a six-inch bracket on the floor that was left when the divider between the doors was removed. So this is one of these deals where you've got those doors that swing in or out, whichever, and there's a bracket. There's like a, a, a divider, a metal divider that goes from the top of the door to the floor. And in order to get stuff in, if it's wider than the door, so you don't have to hold the things open, you got to take out that divider. Well, it leaves a bracket because that divider has got to hook onto something. Right. Well, this poor woman alleges she tripped on the bracket or on the cone that they put on top of the bracket to like cone. mark it because it wasn't cone. very big. Yeah, it wasn't very big. <laughs> and either it had already been kicked off or she didn't see it because the cone was very small. Um, there's a video. But it only shows her falling into the gym. It doesn't show whether the cone was there. It doesn't show actually what she tripped on. She says she thinks she tripped on the bracket, but she doesn't know. So the tort immunity stat, portion of the Tort Immunity Act that I think applies, I can't tell right. um, for sure, but I think it's 745 ILCS 10-3-106. We get very specific. Neither a local public entity nor a public employee is liable for an injury where the liability is based on the existence of a condition of any public property intended or permitted to be used for recreational purposes, including but not limited to parks, playgrounds, open areas, buildings, or other enclosed recreational facilities. This is an enclosed recreational facility. Unless such local entity or public employee is guilty of willful and wanton conduct proximately causing such injury. So there's issues regarding whether the, po- the the school policy is being set by the band parents that are setting out setting up this craft fair and putting on the uh, putting up this cone, um, you know, and who made the decision to, to remove the divider in the first instance. Um, yeah, uh, one wonders if they had a separate insurance of their own, whether they named the school as an additional insured on their policy. You know, sometimes you'll have. You know, organizations, boost organizations will be a corporation and have their own kind of setup. I don't know if that's the situation here. If not, sue them. Uh, if they're the ones that set it up, if they're the ones that uh, did did the thing. So, Dan, why don't you tell us more about the oral argument? Sure. And it was very interesting because it's very narrow and very esoteric. It's really 
a question of whether doors to the enclosed recreational uh, facility are in fact part and parcel of the enclosed facility. Uh, the school district said, of course, they're very important, but how else do you get you. in? Well, how, how do you get in? But the actual recreation that you're doing, just like a playground or anything else, they talked about sidewalks, they talked about parking, they talked about other things. That the reality is, is, is you can play basketball, but you can play open on an open court in, in the park. So, are, uh, are are the doors ingress and egress only? That's what uh, uh, w was being argued here. Uh, that there was a, a lot of talk about the current policies and the deposition. The custodian, I believe it was, mentioned that they no longer uh, take out the divider. Um, but that, but uh, <clears throat> the school district argued, and I think it's an effective argument, that that's subsequent remedial remedies, and so that doesn't count. Um, there was discussion, as you mentioned, an extensive discussion. Uh, this lady was with her daughter. The daughter was pushing a, a baby stroller, so they may have had clearance over this cone, or maybe she was to the side of it, but there was a ta table right to the right as you entered the gym, and there was a lot of discussion about, well, you know, isn't it open and obvious, this, this six-inch thing with or without the cone uh the video doesn't show a cone at all so there's no nobody it doesn't knows show the bracket either. It doesn't show what she it doesn't, it doesn't show, show what she tripped right. on it just shows the poor woman falling right. and breaking her leg and she and she fell into the gym so the question is well she's in the gym when she fell um although again um you know one one, one question i had uh, listening to this, as you mentioned, you have to move move the divider to get the the big tables in and the other stuff. Who knows what the hell kinds of crafts they have in here? Uh, but in any event, um, you you could. I, I mean, I've been to craft fairs. I've been to all these different things for Boy Scouts or other things, and I, I don't re ever remember the the divider ever being out. Right? You just because the the actual event itself, you, you you could have it so that the divider's back in and the the entrance makes it e easy. But in any event. A lot of discussion here. You, you read the, I, I think that's the right statute, piece of the statute that you read because that was an oral argument. They talked about this. And again, the real narrow, narrowly focused question here is are the doors to an enclosed recreational facility, uh, as you mentioned, part and parcel of uh, the recreational, enclosed uh, recreational facilities? Um, you know, the, 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 um, uh, justices uh, on this panel seem to seem to keep saying, "Aren't there questions of fact?" Because this was a motion for summary judgment, and so isn't there questions of fact that come up about whether this is part and parcel of the recreational facility, about open and obvious questions? Because again, um, you know, there, there's no video evidence, like you said, of the divider or of this little cone. Um, I'm not sure that it really matters either way. Um, uh, as as the uh, plaintiff's counsel said, you know, people, uh, nobody's looking down at their feet when they're walking. People are always look, kind of looking to, to where they're walking into. Um, and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the, how this uh, court um, applies it. And, and, and the, the reason this is important here is, is you got, you, you have two uh, counts in this complaint. The first was uh, uh, for negligence uh, and so uh, toward immunity would apply if, in fact, the the doorway is, in fact, and the divider is, in fact, part and parcel of the recreational facility. The second count was willful and wanton, and we've talked about this before as well. Um, there has to be some kind of a pattern or practice or disregard of, of 
you know, taken steps to address this. Um, the uh, school district, I think, their, their advocate argued, again, I think pretty persuasively, that, look, we put a cone on it. We, we tried to identify it. There was, there was in fact, notice that this was a, a something that could, uh, uh, could be an issue. And so, uh, at, at a minimum, we, we did not just ignore uh, the risk, right? And we have, there's no pattern of practice or evidence that the school district uh, was, was wanton and willful in, in their conduct. And so, um, you know, um, again, uh, I, I guess my problem, it's first of all, isn't the Fourier part of the recreational facility? Uh, I would say no, because it, no? it, this is a school. No, I, I would say There's that's the, tr- just, the trophy cases out there where the, all the trophies they won inside the gym and, but that's, you know, isn't that part of the facility? I mean, you just chop off the building at the, at the, at the door. Well, again, I, I, like a football stadium is the concession stands part of the recreational facility. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly, it, is, uh, is the stadium club at, at, at Ford field, you know, the hall of, of distinction, is that part of the recreational facility? I don't know. I, I, I it can't just be the field itself. I mean, it can't just be the court in this case. It's got. I mean, then it doesn't include the stands. Well, yeah. Where, I mean, where does where does it end? Well, it seems the building. It's all part of the facility now. Well, but this I, is a this is a school building, so it's a grade school. So the, then again, I think it gets blurred. It's, I agree. It's not. It's not. Just, it's not just attached to the rest not, of the school. It's not Wintrust Arena where right. Right, where it's just a separate and stands and everything. It's that that's the recreational facility. Right. But this is a again. I don't know what the four four uh, four A uh, you know looks like. Whether whether it's got trophy cases like you said or whether it's you know it's it's an entrance off of the school. Who who the hell knows? I mean, yeah, it's, so difficult questions. But it, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think I, I think sounds the, like a question of fact to me. Well, that, and that's what I think. I think this is going back because, yeah. again, I think it's questions of fact, right? And I don't know. I haven't seen the four. Yeah, I haven't seen. You know, someone's got to figure that out. Is yeah. it part of it or not? I don't know. I don't think you can determine that as a question of law. I'm not sure. Or at least I don't think you can. And I, th- and I think these justices were kind of skeptical. Like, well, you know, we can't, again, they're a court of review, right? They're, they're, we can't be deciding issues of fact and making determinations. So it, right. I think you're right. I think this goes back and. So that's, we've already done our prediction. Sure to go wrong on that one. All right, very good. We saved ourselves some time in the next segment. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of the next segment, let's take our next break and come back with segment three to talk about Dunover versus Clark Material Handling Company. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for segment three of episode 70 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And as Pat mentioned ahead of the break, we're covering Dunover. And judicial estoppel is back before the Illinois Appellate Court, something that seems to be uh, a regular uh, thing in one of the five uh, districts. In Dunover versus Clark Material Handling Company, the first district will decide whether a plaintiff who did not disclose his personal injury suit 
despite being directly asked at the creditors meeting weeks after he filed such a suit for injuries that led him to losing a leg. Um, so uh, interesting uh, lack of disclosure. The trial court granted summary judgment to the defendants, holding that all elements of judicial estoppel were met, despite the plaintiff not obtaining a discharge in bankruptcy. The trial court found that the plaintiff obtained a benefit by the automatic stay that was sufficient to support application of judicial estoppel. Even if all the elements of judicial estoppel were met, the court still has to consider whether it is fair to apply the doctrine under Seymour versus Collins, as Pat will talk about. The decision may turn in part on the application of stare decisis and the applicable precedent. A fifth district decision cited with favor by Seymour held that simply obtaining a stay is insufficient. A first district decision issued after Seymour suggested that a stay may in fact be sufficient. At least one justice was skeptical that they could or should follow the more recent first district decision that is contrary to the favorably cited fifth district decision. Putting procedural issues aside, is a stay a sufficient benefit for judicial estoppel to apply? Pat, tell us about oral argument. Thanks, Dan. So judicial estoppel, uh, we addressed previously on episode 51 in Davis versus Pace. And if you remember in that case, the court reversed uh, finding that judicial estoppel where an expert had essentially given up the ghost on uh, the liability issues in a prior um, uh, uninsured motorist case. That was too harsh a penalty dismissing the case and essentially barred the expert and barred them from making the argument that Pace was the sole proximate cause of the injury. Um, so this case is a bit different. This would bar his entire case where, as, as Dan mentioned, the guy goes to the creditor meetings and get asked, gets asked questions that I frankly thought were pretty clear. But, you know, they the, the advocate for the plaintiff is like, hold it. These are quite he didn't quite understand. He didn't know what was going on. You know, he, dude, you have a lawsuit for having lost your leg. Right. I, I I would think if you're asked if you had any lawsuits you filed, that might have come to mind. Um, maybe. But this happens a lot. Most of these, these uh, judicial estoppel cases come up in the uh, bankruptcy context. They do. And the elements are that you took a, uh, you took a, opposite position in a prior proceeding, you gained a benefit thereby. These are essentially the elements. And the big one we're focused on here is, is this a benefit? Now, usually in these cases, the person has gotten a discharge. Well, this guy didn't do all the things he was supposed to under the chapter uh, 13. And so he did not get a discharge and his bankruptcy was dismissed, it seems. But he did during that year have a stay of having to pay his creditors. Uh, and he got that in part because he told you know he didn't tell them about this asset. I mean, had he told them about this asset, uh, they creditors may have taken it over, and then uh, they would have taken it and distributed it for the benefit whatever they recovered. They would have distributed it for the benefit of the creditors, and then he would have uh, gotten the difference. But it would have been taken over by the trustee. The trustee apparently ended up not you know it got discharged or dismissed before he got the discharge. So that's the first question, but the court's got to figure out how to, the, because the Supreme Court has never decided the issue of whether a stay is a sufficient benefit. So you have a case cited, as Dan said, favorably by the Supreme Court in Seymour, which is the last 
time the Illinois Supreme Court has addressed this issue. I think it's like a 2015 case or something. Something like that. And there's a first district case since then that said, no, you know, the stay is enough uh, for a benefit. So you have these two competing decisions and the Supreme Court, yes, has cited one favorably, but for a different proposition, to be sure. Um, you know, they could, I mean, they, there was no reason for them and Seymour to go out of their way to say, you know, there was something wrong with that decision. Uh, it wasn't the issue that they were confronted with, but, you know, usually the way this works and for a trial court, so you can understand, put yourself in the trial court's position. Illinois has one appellate court. There are five districts in that appellate court. If there's a conflict between the first and the fifth and a trial judge picks is sitting in the first, they have to follow the first. That's why the trial did, judge did what she did in all right. likelihood. However, if a judge sitting in the second district, if a trial judge sitting in the second district has uh, an appellate court in the first district saying A and an appellate court in the fifth district saying C, saying B, that trial judge gets to choose what right. they do. Now, appellate courts sit in a different situation. Their boss is the Supreme Court. So they are not bound by what another panel or even the same panel of the first district had to say on the topic. So they can do whatever they want. Uh, so long as the Supreme Court hasn't said clearly what the law is, and it doesn't seem the court has, it is kind of said it likes this opinion, but not on that point from the fifth district. So there's a real question, uh, you know, of how do we apply stare decisis in this circumstance? Is it going to apply the first district going to follow itself, or is it going to follow? You know, because plainly this first district opinion that came after Seymour uh, disregarded what the fifth district had to say and the favorable citing. Um, right. I, I'm not a big fan of the stare decisis. I think just get the case right. Uh, you know, just because you got it wrong in the past doesn't mean you should compound the error by continuing to get it wrong. Um, so my view is somewhat very similar to Justice Thomas's. Um, so those paying along the drinking game, take a drink. And because I'm agreeing with him, take another. Um, so we, we, we'll have a little fun here. Uh, and I bring up stare decisis also because that might be a little issue that the Supreme Court is dealing with right now. Uh, it is. Stare it, decisis it is. seems to be front and center in what they're in what they're deciding, and and uh, they've been fighting about it all for many for several years now. It's uh, come to a all, head though all coming to the head for this because they knew this was coming and the this in this sentence is the um is the Dobbs versus uh Jackson William women's health case for those that aren't familiar with I don't understand how you couldn't be that aren't right. familiar with what we're talking about it's the it's the Dobbs case and figuring out what stare decisis means um and when it should apply or if it should apply um and so that that's kind of what we're that that's the principle that that's an issue here. Dan, did we hit everything with regards to, to this case? Uh, it's a sad set of facts. This person suffered a horrible injury, but uh, you got to disclose the bankruptcy. Uh, the, 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 you got to disclose the, the case of the bankruptcy. I, I, yeah, I yeah. just had a case on Friday where I filed, or sorry, on Thursday, I was up on Friday in court and I, I got the coverage case. And we fi I find out Thursday night that the insured has declared bankruptcy, got a discharge. And so that evening, I pull up the bankruptcy filing. I look at it. She disclosed the law underlying tort lawsuit. Gave, you know, Obviously, in that context, gave notice to the person who had sued her. It seems that was the reason why she filed bankruptcy. And the underlying tort 
uh, underlying tort plaintiff didn't get a uh, modification of the automatic stay to the extent of insurance. So then she goes ahead and gets gets a discharge. Case both cases may be over. The tort case and the coverage case may be over. So right. we'll see. I mean, this this happens where you you actually disclose the lawsuit on now. This was a case where she was being sued, not one where she had the asset. But the same principle applies. Um, you got to disclose the lawsuits. It's an asset or a yep. liability, as the case may be. Yep. Uh, so with that, Dan, you want to turn to our prediction sure to go wrong this week, having done already uh, uh, the Wilson case. Yep. Let's talk about Lake Imaging versus Franciscan. What do you think it's going to happen here? I think it's going to get reversed. I, I yeah. don't think they, they're they're concerned about the policy implications here, and they're going to they're they're going to basically say, legislature, this one's on you. We don't know what the heck to do with this, but we're not getting in the middle of this problem. Uh, I, I we're not making a hash of this. If, if you guys want to make a hash of it, go ahead. But you're going to have to do it, not us. I, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, I think that as we've talked about, courts of appeal are, are especially Supreme Courts. While they do sometimes make policy, they they try to resist being in the soup and making you know. Well, here they're rewriting the statute. Right. I mean, they're they're being which, asked. Which they're, not really, they're not going right. to do. They're not going to do that. I, no. I don't think they're going to do that. That's what that's what I mean. Uh, uh, that's called asking too much. I think so. And speaking of asking too much, Dunover, uh, they're being asked to sort out, try to read the tea leaves of what their bosses down in Springfield have to say um, on a topic. I, I I honestly don't know. I would love to punt this one, but because I just they yeah. really struggled with I what to do. Punt. I, yeah, listen to the argument. I think this is one where we punt. I don't we know don't, what to we do. We don't punt often, but yeah. we we do. We're punt. into that. Okay, yeah. very good, outstanding. Glad we agreed to punt. All right. Ones where we didn't punt this week. Uh, we went uh, two and one. Uh, Dan is now 89, 15, and seven. And I am 88, 16, and seven. And the first case, uh, we'll talk about the one we got wrong first. Yep. That's uh, uh, Watson. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about the Watson case, which is a BIPA case? Yep. They just, it, they're coming fast and furious now, the BIPA cases. Well, and speaking of punting a bit, uh, the the court did that here a little bit, right? The uh, court held that the statute it only limitation- decided what it had to decide. I know it did, but but you know the, 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 this is an important topic. I think Indeed. this this is a case with the with the hand scan and and uh, what the court did say is that the statute of limitations accrues for a BIPA claim each time the biometric information is scanned by the device, which means every time until the last time. You know, the, the statute of limitations continues to extend. Um, so that's what they did decide, uh, which which that uh, could potentially expose defendants to ruinous damages. But they, the court explicitly declined to address the issue uh, of whether there's damages uh, that accrue uh, in the interpretation of the statute each time that the scan takes place. And we talked about this, Pat. That if you're an employer, you have somebody employed for, say, 20 years or 15 since the statute was enacted, and every day, uh, 250 days a year, they scan in and out, maybe at lunchtime, uh, breaks, everything. It could be six times a day. If you have statutory damages for each of those things. Well, it would uh, only go back five years. But well, five then, years, but in any five, event. Five years of that. <laughs> times times 250 days times six. Um, th- this would be a new new. Uh, uh, TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, anybody that works for one of these companies that scans in and scans out multiple times a day would be uh, rich. 
So they they would potentially. the 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 court had a couple caveats. First of all, it said it well. First of all, it says there's only may damages. They may award damages, and those damages may be up to a thousand dollars. But we're not convinced we would do that. It's ruinous. That it's ruinous. We don't have to reach that question. The question simply is whether the the claim accrues. Right. And every time this happens, you there's a new claim. Okay. Right. That certainly came up in the Tim's case. It also yeah. helps resolve the Seventh Circuit case. I think the uh, the the uh, Latrina Cathrone case versus White Castle case we've talked about. Right. I think that's going to resolve that one as well. They they denied leave to file two amicus briefs, uh, one on behalf of the restaurants and one on behalf of another business group because yeah. they focused on the damages. Court's like we're not reaching the damages. We don't want to hear about damages. Right. Uh, that's a that's a that's a case for a different day. If the damages are out of whack, then we'll deal with that. Um, and as I've said many times on the on on the show about these cases, is I have yet to find someone that lost their biometric data as a result of one of these collections and suffered actual damages. Which is, I mean, if, which if is it happens, that, then if it happens, then that's one thing. But right. I haven't ever heard of an instance where it occurred. No, no, um, neither. If it did happen, yes, you should be able to recover, but you don't need this statute to do it. Right. But there we are. Uh. So that brings us to one we got right, Thomas versus Corey, which was discussed on episodes 15 and 16 of the show, where we had Ed Grisey, who argued in front of the Supreme Court and represented the plaintiff, uh, and his colleague, uh, Christopher uh, Willis. Um, This is a case, so as I posted, the United States Supreme Court isn't the only court dealing with abortion this fall. Uh, the, The Illinois Supreme Court is too. And a lot of um, other courts as well. Exactly. This case is, though, deals in the medical malpractice context uh, where alleged malpractice leads to the need for a legal elective abortion. Does a me- Can a medical malpractice claim stand against the doctors whose negligence is alleged to have caused the abortion? And in this case, there was a, uh, the, the mother, um, she, unbeknownst to her and the doctors, was pregnant. Uh, they, she suffered an injury and they did or did a procedure that was elective in nature and they didn't do a, they didn't do a pregnancy test or a sufficient pregnancy test that could have determined if she was pregnant and had they, they would have discovered she was pregnant and they wouldn't have done the procedure because the anesthesia and whatnot created a big problem for the baby and they had to, and they had to take health issues, right? And they had to take the baby. So the court said, no, the statute says that it only applies to. It only applies to uh, uh, the doctor who actually performs the abortion. It doesn't apply to the doctor who did the negligence that led to the abortion. Yep. Uh, there, it was a lengthy dissent. The dissent lengthy. is longer than the majority opinion by orders of magnitude. It is. Um, Justice Garmin, uh, joined by Justice Carter, I think, yep. uh, filed a, a lengthy dissent, essentially saying. Uh, taking the court to task for you're misreading the statute, you're misreading the legislative history, you're misreading the plain text of the state, the whole thing. Uh, the 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 majority goes. It's like, are you people reading the same stuff? <laughs> it's one right. of those where they just the the seven of them just aren't reading the same stuff. Right. Uh, and so they, uh, the plaintiff is going to get to have their day in court to figure out if these doctors caused that abortion to be necessary. Uh, anything else to talk about with regards to Corey? No, why don't you tell us about Armstead, the, the third case that we got right? So the third case we got right, and I'm gonna, and we got we this should count as two. 
Because right. I went back and listened to our comments on this. So this is the case where the guy gets into the automobile accident, or the trucking accident, rather, in Illinois. He files the comp claim in Pennsylvania. He settles that for a, a, a knee injury alone. He come in, in his lawsuit here in Illinois, in Grundy County, he, he wants a knee, a back, a shoulder. The court kicks the back claim and says, you're judicially stopped. Remember, heard about that. Yep. Judicial stop, you're judicially stopped. It goes up to the appellate court. The appellate court reverses before it grants a motion to to uh, for rehearing. And then a year and a half later, it says, nope, you know what? On this alternative basis that the defendant raised, you're collaterally stopped. Up goes the case. While it's going up, the plaintiff voluntarily dismisses the case in right. the trial court because the only way to get the case up was on Supreme Court Rule 304A, which is the federal the federal equivalent of 54B. The problem is that an injury is not a claim. A negligence is a claim. It has four elements: duty, breach, causation, damage. One of the elements, this is only one half of one element. That's not a claim. Right. Uh, so the 304A grant was improper. The while the case was on appeal, the defendant filed a motion to say it was moot. Case is moot. There's no case left. The court denied that motion. Said no. It's not not that it's moot. We don't have jurisdiction, and that's where we get the pat on the back. Because when we talked about the case, I was like, I don't understand how you take 304A language from this. This right. doesn't make any sense to me. I never understood it, and that's what the court decided on. The court said no. The 304A grant was improper. You don't get to. It never should have been in front of the appellate court. Uh, the appellate court should have dismissed the case for lack of jurisdiction. But meanwhile, you screwed up and you voluntarily dismissed the case. The statute ran. There's no case left. Uh, okay. Now, there was a dissent here as well. Chief Justice uh, Burke, uh, joined by Justice Neville, I believe, uh, wrote a dissent in which they said, yes, I agree there's no jurisdiction, but the remedy isn't dismissal. The remedy is the motion to dismiss was a legal nullity because you can't dismiss part of a claim. The, the but then what was if 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 the court? But I, I think she's wrong, and here's where I think here's where I think she gets it wrong. If she's correct, and I think she is, that you can't take uh, an appeal of only part of a case. Then that meant the whole case was still pending in front of the circuit court of Grundy County. Right. And yes, he made the legal error of saying he was dismissing the knee claim, whatever that meant. Yes, that was a, that was an error, but so what? You dismissed a whole case. You can't dismiss part of a case. You dismiss a whole case, and that's what he asked to do. So that's very interesting. Um, that uh, So that case, we were looking forward to getting some real clarity on an important issue as to merits. We're not getting that. We're getting right. instead, as I'm going to, as I wrote in my column that was submitted this morning to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, some lessons. The appellate court, the trial court, and the lawyers all get a lesson, each one for each, uh, or two actually for the lawyers. But lessons for everybody to go around. That's the Christmas gift from the Illinois Supreme Court to the bench and to the bar yep. uh, in this in this case. Um, did I cover that one? You did. All right. Uh, and then we had a bit of a quirk this week. The Dent case, uh, uh, Dent versus Constellation Energy, that had uh, was on the list of orders that was supposed to come down, or list of opinions that was supposed to come down, and that it didn't show up. 
Uh, we don't know why. Uh, this is the second time this has happened this year, to our knowledge. It happened on the Eigner versus Tiernan case back in July. Uh, don't know what's going on there. Uh, we'll have to see uh, what uh, what happens with that. Yeah. And then there's, for those that are, oh, sorry, go ahead, Dan. Has, I was just going to say, there's no there's no information or anything when they don't release these cases of why yeah. that happens. You have no idea if it's a there's a dissent coming or if there's just some issue that who the hell knows. No one knows. I, I we'll find out when it eventually publishes. Well, we'll find out when it publishes. But we won't find out why. Why this right. this happened. Uh, also, a quick note: we discussed Indiana Repertory Theater versus Cincinnati. Though it's on appeal, is another one of those where there's stuff still going on in the trial court, and the court, the, just the trial court issued a 37-page opinion. I have not yet had a chance to read, dealing with admission of the expert testimony and saying no on the uh, the virus being in the property and whatnot. And that was one yeah. of the issues I think we talked about. Um, you know, one of the reasons why the the def- the plaintiffs, the insureds wanted a remand was because they had this motion pending while the motion was denied. Yep. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Yep. So that brings us to the rule of the week. Um, and this is not quite a rule, but a very interesting piece of advocacy. Um, yes. So let me cue this up and uh, let's listen to this. And the case is Donahue versus Demma. Donahue versus Demma before the first district. So here we go. Here's my thought on this. I'm glad to hear you say, sir, that you'd like to ask questions because in the appellate court, as in the lower court, uh, my view is that that oral argument is the benefit of the court, not for me. And so I always start an argument at any level with the question, what is on your mind? Would you like me to simply present what I think is important or do you want to get right to it as to the various things that are on your mind? In particular, in a case like this, where there are a number of issues, some of which I think are more important than others, but what is there something in particular you'd like me to just get right to? Well, Mr. Kenyak, um, I've been doing this nine years. I haven't had an attorney start out like that, but it's probably not a bad idea. Um, please remember, we are familiar with the facts. We don't need So that's a new one. Uh, At least it was for Justice DeLort. He hadn't heard that before. Um, I will say that I have started arguments at a trial court where that I know that where I know they're familiar and I know the issue and I'm confident of where I'm at. They'll say, Judge, you got questions for me. So I kind of know. And then I in the trial court, I oftentimes save the good stuff for rebuttal because typically the matters I handle, the judges are familiar with the issue. They know where I'm at. Uh, and the plaintiff has come up or the other side has come up with some creative thing that I've got to deal with. And it's better for me to do that on rebuttal, um, as opposed to trying to deal with everything in opening. So it's one thing I've done. Um, but, uh, what do you think of this way of opening? Uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly unique. I mean, uh, I mean, he's right to a point, but I, I've never heard anybody quite do it that way, right? You know, at any appellate level, at least it's, uh, right. it's kind of a unique uh, perspective. We'll have and, to see how effective it is. All right. But like the Lord said, you know, this is the first time I've heard it open that way. And that was after there was a, uh, be, preceding that there was, there was talk about one of the judges, the justices on the panel had Wi-Fi issues. So right. they uh, we're starting late. <laughs> so, so we usually don't get our title of the show 
from uh, from one of the advocates. We, that usually is, and sometimes it happen, usually happens from, if it happens not from us, but it happens from one of the justices or judges asking a question. Uh, but we got it from one of the advocates today. What's on your mind? So <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, with that, Dan, I think we've uh, we've we've covered it for the week. Uh, yeah. We're going to have a special episode on Tuesday with Tim Eaton on a case decided or a case argued in the Fifth District, and then we're going to have Ed uh, Grisset and Christopher Willis on Corey. I think we're going to we're efforting for that for Wednesday. So lots of content coming out for your Christmas holiday, uh, and uh, look forward to seeing everybody. Uh, um. And hope you listen uh, with all the content we've got coming. I will talk to you soon, Dan. Take care. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.